Hello, future Fluency listeners. We've been on a journey the last several episodes to understand how the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement are shaping our economy, the workforce, and the consumer. And while many organizations are attempting to make adjustments to the way they operate in response to current events, two important questions to consider are, what is the social impact of the changes we're making? And what should innovation look like at a time like this? We'll begin to answer those questions this episode. I'm Ashley Marchand Orm, and this is Future Fluency, a podcast by the National Association of Corporate Directors, where we explore the changing face of America through the lens of innovation and culture and their impacts on business. We'll be chatting in this episode with Nate Wong. Nate is an expert in social impact strategy and mobilizing talent to move toward innovation. I've asked him to give you a snapshot of his experience. I'm Nate Wong. I serve as the managing director at the Beck Center uh, for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University. In terms of professional background, I've had a pretty circuitous career. Um, They've all really centered around being a builder and what some may call, I use air quotes, <laughs> a social entrepreneur. So an inside change agent for good. Um, I've been really fortunate to launch and lead uh, three social impact units inside larger institutions, including Deloitte Consulting, Boston Consulting Group, and now at Georgetown University with the Beck Center. So we hear a lot these days about the idea of flattening the curve in reference to flatten the epidemic curve or slowing the spread of the coronavirus. You, though, have spoken also about flattening the inequity curve. What is the inequity curve and how do we go about flattening it? It's a great question. Maybe if we can actually start first by flattening the curve from a coronavirus standpoint, I think that illustration is actually um, interesting to unpack uh, and the illustration was intentional. So. Even if we think about the coronavirus, early days, if we can remember in the before times, um, there's almost some psychology that public health practitioners really use to help navigate this really unseen threat that no one could really see. It wasn't tactile. We couldn't feel it until it was too late. Um, And if, if we remember back during those times, it was really hard to convince people that this threat was even real or the impact of their individual actions, like social distancing, like mask wearing, and the implications that they had to the larger collective. So that, um, that curve was really powerful as a visual representation showing the number of infected people that needed healthcare over time and how social distancing, the collective notion of of doing that, could slow the spread of the virus. So that visual, I think, is is just important for us to acknowledge. I think it's become so much of a term that we've used, Um, but even to get on board with that, uh, we as humans almost need those connective dots to um, piece those together. I frankly see inequity as a similar type invisible virus that's insidious, it's frankly born as we now know, um, and some of us really have, have known um, both from a personal standpoint or even academic, 
uh, it's structural and it's systemic. It's the air that we breathe almost. And as we've seen, especially with the coronavirus, it disproportionately affects certain populations. So the curve that I describe is, is more of an illustrative one, describing the number of people left out of the system over time. Um, and what I was hoping to do in terms of mimicking, flattening the curve from a coronavirus standpoint is really making the uh, link between individual actions to, to the collective action that we see. I think sometimes because we can't see um, inequity, it doesn't always present itself um, in some of our lives. Um, it's really easy to forget uh, how our individual actions uh, affect that. Um, and the piece that I think is in, important here is in the innovation side. The work that I do is really focused on um, social innovation. And oftentimes when we think about innovation, it's, it's really through the lens of fast, quick solutions like the Silicon Valley types. Um, but when we employ those solutions, I think we always we also see that people are often pushed to the margins because those solutions don't necessarily benefit the whole. Like even take this platform like Zoom. I think many of us latched onto it out of necessity and it's a really powerful platform, but we are also seeing the very real effects of the digital divide. The fact that a hundred million Americans, so a third of our population, they don't have access to high-speed internet. They're, they can't actually rely and quickly skip a beat and go virtual, like many of us are fortunate to, to have. And so that's the same type of um, notion that I'm hoping to describe in this flattening the inequity curve. The very real shared responsibility that we have um, to solve inequity. That's great, Nate. And I want to pull that thread a little bit further through. So. How should social innovation or innovating for the common good be thought of differently? Sure. I, I think it really starts first around how we even conceive of innovation. So, Ashley, if I can almost ask you a question, like, what do you think of when you think about innovation? Oh, that's a good question. I tend to think of um, resourcefulness and working basically to come up with a new solution for a problem. Yeah. I, I think many times when I ask myself this question or others, um, they have similar responses. It's something quick, responsive, oftentimes fast. Um, it's sometimes a new technology. Oftentimes it comes in a form of a new startup. Um, I think a lot of times our con constructs of innovation can be rooted, at least for in a U.S. context, around Silicon Valley um, and the Googles of the world uh, that are able to be nimble and create innovations that scale really large. Um, but when we look at the world's ills and solving them, I think we have to have a very different concept of approaching innovation. And especially when we think about this notion of social innovation, we can't necessarily port over the Silicon Valley venture capital lens, which usually looks at it through a single um, company or a single product to incentivize it to go bigger, better, faster. Um, positive impact in a, from a social uh, impact standpoint 
really doesn't have the same intent. Um, it usually revolves around multiple actors. These problems are intractable. A single actor can't really solve it. Um, so building on that same idea of flattening the inequity curve, it really requires looking at the problem from multiple angles. Uh, I think that's incredibly important. Sometimes we're so quick to, to solve something and to be novel that we're not even looking at the right problem. Uh, I think it also involves people who are affected being part of the design process of that um, and really understanding the unintended effects of um, solutions because we're working in a larger system. Um, you might be solving one problem um, and then creating a host of other problems. And so when you, when you think about it from uh, an ecosystem perspective, it's a very, very different context in which we think about social innovation. And that's what I'm hoping um, we uh, can orient ourselves around versus a venture capital or Silicon Valley type of innovation model. That's a really interesting way to think about it and your point even about how, you know, in, in moving toward innovation, we may even end up inadvertently creating additional problems. It really does you know, bring home that idea of thinking through all the stakeholders who are impacted by whatever it is you're trying to innovate in. So a very, really good point there. Um, Nate, I know that in late June, you co-wrote an article in Business Insider about the importance of a collective or we-centered approach to innovation, especially applied to our recovery from the pandemic. So what does a we-centered approach to innovation and recovery look like? Yeah, so in Business Insider, my co-author Vaishant and I, we're really trying to capture the need for this collective action. I think we have to contrast the we-centered approach um, that we're purporting with the me-centered approach especially in times of crisis. I think there's, people can go in, in two modes. Um, the usual is actually going really insular. Uh, in this pandemic, that's very real. Most of us are not even leaving our, our houses or homes. Um, when fear creeps in, there's that natural flight or fight instinct um, and we get really myopic. Um, we ask ourselves questions like, how am I safe? How can I protect what I have? Um, but there's the other side of the coin where in a crisis, we could also um, actually ask almost the reverse. Um, and I, I think that's actually important, even as we think about our own lives and how much the absence of something has made us yearn for, for example, human interaction the fact that we are intrinsically linked um, to each other. And that's what I, I think the economic recovery demands, a we-centered approach where we're really looking at um, service, we're looking at um, our uh, communities. Um, too often we, we see politicians, government agencies, and people that work really independently from one another. Um, that's the me-centered approach, and it usually only benefits certain people, many times wealthy folks um, at the expense of lower income frontline workers or broader um, public good. So a we-centered approach instead um, are asking questions like what incentives do I have or what assets do I have that can benefit others? 
who would I need uh, to partner with to get those assets uh, deployed or used? That's really helpful. Thank you, Nate. And I know that at the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation, within a period of just two weeks, your team had pulled together a couple thousand experts to help provide digital support for governments responding to the pandemic. Could you share a bit more about that project specifically, you know, how the idea came about, who participated? So the, the person that really does deserve uh, full credit is actually my colleague, uh, Corey Barrick. She was part of a larger group of former government technologists uh, that were asking themselves these we-centered questions. So, you know, the usual, and we have to remember this is so far long ago, it seems, um, but in late March, when we were almost asking ourselves, like, how is your toilet paper supply? Um, they were asking a different set of questions. They probably were also asking that question too, but um, they were asking questions like, how bad is this gonna be for our government systems? And what can we do? Um, and while they weren't able to opine on public health strategies, um, not in their expertise, what they were really equipped to do is understand systems and websites, and frankly, the people that were running government, um, and what it was like to be in a crisis. Um, obviously, the pandemic is magnitudes more significant than other crises that I think many of us have been part of. Um, but what they did was actually create the U.S. digital response to support governments um, so they could start, so they could run and provide uninterrupted services. So we think about services like unemployment benefits or small business loans or food stamps, um, services that people rely on day in, day out, but oftentimes are not are done in person. And so when the pandemic hit, a lot of those services um, weren't on websites. And so in two weeks, 3,000 data scientists, engineers, human-centered designers, other tech leaders raised their hand to pitch in. And that's what formed the U.S. digital response. Um, I think what's really important here is um, that the speed and agility that it took to put together was really based on a lot of efforts that happened way before the pandemic. So trusted, well-networked coalitions, um, networks created not only uh, with the Beck Center, but also uh, civic technologists like um, the Code for America that has a many, uh, a, a network of 80 brigades all over the country. And that really enabled the agility to mobilize so quickly. Wonderful. Are there any other helpful examples that come to mind around a public and private partnership, how that should look during this pandemic? Sure, there are a number of them. Um, I think we've seen a lot in the technology space. Um, especially with the shift to a more virtual environment. So we've seen that with bigger players like Google that develop toolkits and resources for teachers uh, to ensure a seamless transition. Frankly, that was helpful and used by parents who then had another job added to, to their existing jobs of being teachers in their homes. Um, we've also 
interestingly enough, seen um, some really fascinating efforts in the hospitality industry that frankly is hurting tremendously right now. So one that comes to mind is Hotel Revival in Baltimore. Early on in the pandemic, uh, they saw that their unused kitchen facilities were assets that small businesses could use. They also saw that their empty hotel rooms that obviously were not <laughs> being used um, by normal patrons could actually house healthcare workers and police and firefighters who just needed to take a rest and maybe needed to self-quarantine before returning to their respective homes. Um, so I, I think we're actually seeing a lot more of this type of we-centered, um, holistic approaches where people are getting really creative and partnering with other businesses. Listeners, we're going to jump right back into our conversation with Nate in a moment, but we're first going to hear briefly from one of our content partners about social enterprises. Erica Bellini is the global practice leader of human capital for Deloitte. Erica, thanks for joining us. Let's talk about what makes an organization a social enterprise. Seismic changes have been happening in the workforce, the workplace, with regard to technologies and unprecedented disruptions. And all of those changes have really been a catalyst for organizations to fundamentally reevaluate their relationship with their workers, with their customers, and with the communities in which they operate and society as a whole. We've seen many organizations evolving from traditional business enterprises to what we call social enterprises where their strategies need to consider more than just shareholder value, but also stakeholder value, meaning that they have to listen to, invest in, and actively manage the ecosystem in which they operate. As part of our Global Human Capital Trends Report, we surveyed 9,000 business and HR leaders across 119 countries to find out what it looks like for social enterprises to go to work. And what we found is that organizations who embed three main attributes of their culture into the fabric of their DNA are better positioned to bring a human focus to everything they touch and to create lasting value for themselves and society at large. And those three attributes are purpose, potential, and perspective. When we talk about purpose, we're talking about how organizations can embed meaning into every aspect of work every single day. Organizations who embrace purpose allow individuality to become a source of strength in their organization, bringing together unique complementary abilities in the pursuit of shared goals. In doing so, they optimize the power of each individual worker by connecting them to each other, to their teams, and to the organization through their purpose at work. Organizations that embrace potential are those that leverage reinvention as the means to find security amidst ongoing change. Instead of organizations anchoring their workforce strategies on what workers have done, what they have proven that they can do, instead they focus on what workers are capable of doing. So in turn, they're developing their workforce's capacity to contribute to the organization in new ways. And that's how we will see the promotion of innovation 
of the reinvention of ways of working and how organizations can start to make a bigger impact beyond just shareholders. And finally, organizations that embrace perspective are those that allow uncertainty to give rise to new possibilities. Organizations that embrace perspective have a future orientation that allows them to transform uncertainty, which is absolutely the world we're living in, that of absolute uncertainty, into the ability to confidently navigate the future of work. It's these three attributes of purpose, potential, and perspective that we believe are the foundation for organizations to move from being traditional business enterprises to social enterprises, and ultimately leading in the future of work. Great. Erica, thank you for joining us. Listeners, let's return to our conversation with Nate. I'm wondering whether it's, it'd be interesting to maybe talk a little bit about how you think about fostering innovation within your company at a time like this? Yeah, fostering innovation can mean so many different things. And so where we go for inspiration um, can also come from a myriad of, of other places. I think sometimes we, we see other contexts, um, especially in the pandemic. It's fascinating to actually look at what are other countries doing? What are other organizations doing um, in other locales? How can we learn from them? Um, so I think just context, placing yourself in a different context can be a real, um, hub of inspiration. I think it's also process. Um, we're seeing a real change in power dynamics that I think are actually really helpful in, in, in innovation, where innovation isn't only relegated to the R&D group or the subject matter expert leaders in the organizations, it can actually percolate from the bottom up. But what we've also seen is sometimes bureaucracy and process prevent those ideas from bubbling to the top where they can be actioned. So I would say that's another element of how do you actually change the system so that people can interact differently and there is more of a marketplace, a truly open marketplace where ideas can um, percolate, and that can come right within your organization. I think there's also an another interesting aspect of co-opetition. So where can you have uh, inspiration from competitors? And if we think about, again, this, this notion of uh, we-centeredness, where do we just need to up everyone's game? And I think that's an innovation in and of itself. I'd like to shift a little bit and talk about the role of philanthropy in the context of inclusive recovery. How do we get beyond just good intentions and make sure that philanthropic efforts have the impact needed for the communities that we're intending to help? Philanthropy plays such an important role here. I think philanthropy can sometimes be this bridge between public and private sectors where private sector oftentimes can move really quickly. Um, but may not have the incentives or ability to reach the most vulnerable. Um, it's not always in their customer base. And private, or sorry, public sector, um, they do have that in their mandate to serve all citizens, but um, aren't always as agile uh, as we saw in a lot of the, the changes going on um, with COVID. 
So philanthropy can play a really important role in directing money and incentivizing um, players, uh, especially in times of crisis. They can also take bigger bets because uh, philanthropy doesn't always have to see a return, at least in terms of monetary return. And that's where I think there's some really interesting plays. Um, I think there's also an evolving shift in philanthropy where social innovation, I think before was much more focused on the individual nonprofit or an organization that an individual philanthropy could fund. Now there's much more of that ecosystem play. So again, same thing that I was talking about before about the, so, the broader social innovation definition. Um, and places are looking at how can we invest in larger public systems like governments um, and safety net benefits uh, that we were talking about earlier to better serve communities. But I would also say there's an insidious side um, to philanthropy. So philanthropy can also be a contributor of reinforcing old behavior that if it moves too quickly, or frankly, if it's based on funder whims, it may not involve the most vulnerable people um, in terms of decision-making. Um, sometimes at its worst, we've seen quick results, headlines, um, type of funding, um, and we don't always see accountability to the communities based on the intended outcomes that they're, they're hoping for. Oftentimes funding can go to individual superstar efforts. And so, you know, I think we've seen it after Black Lives Matter. We've seen it um, with uh, the pandemic where certain organizations are just highlighted over and over and over again, which is, fine, um, but sometimes those organizations um, don't, like can't scale that, that well, or uh, there's a lot of other organizations that are doing similar missions in their um, specific locales that aren't getting the funding because they're not deemed as superstars. So I think to the point, philanthropy can play good and um, good and bad roles in this. I, I'm hopeful that in a time like COVID, they will be playing really important roles. Um, I think they can also really shift power. And we've seen really interesting models that are popping up uh, where they're building trust with vulnerable populations. For example, the participatory budgeting project is a really fascinating project that looks at um, how you build trust with uh, certain populations, um, paying for transportation, using facilitators when elected officials are involved, really making equity an explicit goal of the process, not just the outcome. And I think that's a pretty big shift. It all aligns with this broader principle of designing with, not for a community. That's a great, great point about involving people in that, that process, not just the outcomes. Um, Nate, many of our listeners are business leaders who have decision-making power at their organizations. Could you share with them maybe one step that they could take toward being part of this idea of a we-centered recovery? I'll do one, one better, Ashley, and I'll give you two. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first step is actually looking insular. 
what is the core asset that your organization has? Um, and we've seen it, I'll, I'll help seed that uh, conversation. We've seen it happen, for example, in consulting, your core asset is your people. Um, so the ingenuity of your people, involving them in the process that's important. In the example that I described earlier with Hotel Revival, um, their latent physical assets were something that was really helpful, um, especially for mutual aid, aid organizations. Could be actual funds itself, like real money and dollars, um, and especially you know, to, toward Black-owned businesses. That's incredibly important. And like we saw with Google and other tech organizations, it can just be your products that are deployed in other contexts that you may have not offered for free for one population that is a paying customer that could be opened up to others. And so that's the more insular first step. I think the second step, which is incredibly important, is how to deploy it and where to deploy your assets. And I think to do that well, especially, especially if we think about a more we-centered or um, socially-minded approach, it will involve starting local, and it will involve bringing other players into the decision-making process who know the space better, that know a population better, know a problem better um, than a single business. Um, and that, I think those two steps are incredibly important. Sometimes it may mean relying on another organization and, and really backing and supercharging their efforts. At other times, an entity doesn't exist. And so that's really where business um, can step into the fold. We've talked mostly to this point about the pandemic. Another really big way society is changing right now is around its awareness of racial justice and anti-racism. So what are your thoughts around that tie-in between social impact and the current racial justice movement we're seeing? Frankly, the two are incredibly intertwined. Uh, we've seen the twin crises of the pandemic and how it's disproportionately affected people of color, black and brown uh, people especially. And I think it's more of a heightened consciousness that we've seen after the killing of George Floyd and so many other black and brown people. Um, it's not necessarily new, it may be new to some people. Um, but as we think about inclusive recovery and more social innovation that benefits larger swaths of society, we also have to interrogate our past and we have to interrogate the very systems that we rely on and how we are complicit to the things that we're saying we're changing. I think there's oftentimes a disconnect between the very real ownership that organizations and individuals take by saying how they are actually perpetuating uh, a poor system and the very do-gooder um, sentiment of you know, donating to Color of Change or whatever XYZ organization. Um, and the two have to really be aligned. And I think that's the, that's the real hard part. And frankly, the invitation that I would invite us all in, and I think we're all in that journey together, um, these social innovations should be helping move toward a more just and equitable society that works for all, not the privileged few. Um, so we kind of have to interrogate 
why are there the privileged few? Um, Ashley, if I could give almost an example or a, an illuminating thought here. Um, I think, especially for business, we oftentimes talk about the invisible hand of markets or capitalism. But I think that invisible hand can be a cop out for interrogating like what exactly defines a market. The fact that at the peak and height of the uprisings after George Floyd, the stock, stock market went up, that should send al alarm bells um, to us, um, not only as business-minded people, but also just people who own stock. <laughs> um, analysts and traders saw riots just like a mere distraction. Clearly, that was a sentiment evidenced in the stock market. The black and brown people and their allies saw it as a moment where they were saying this is enough, a moment to really confront our past and really think toward what does a just equitable society look like. And so capital markets is just one example that frankly is overwhelmingly white. Um, more than half of US households own some type of stock. Um, but if we look at, at it in terms of stock ownership broken down by race, it's actually pretty startling. 60% of white households own stock, while only 30%, so half of that, um, of Black and Hispanic households own stock. So even just that notion of markets doing the work and us almost entrusting our money into the hands of an institution is somewhat flawed. And hopefully that's illuminating the role that we all individually play, but the role that corporate leaders play in righting the wrongs that are frankly built into our system, like the air that we breathe. And so we do have to think about things as simple as the diversity of engineers that are designing our health apps. You know, we rely on our Apple watches, um, but do they actually work for all or were they only tested on a certain population? We rely on AI training data, um, but does it hide and embed bias in, in it? Um, all of those things are important. And if I can just add, there's, it also applies to philanthropy and public sector too. This isn't just a, and it, it shouldn't be just a corporate problem. Um, philanthropies have the mission for the public and the most vulnerable. Um, they have to think about their endowments. How are they in alignment with their values? Are they just putting it in the stock market that is embedded with all of these biases? How are they thinking about um, alignment of the, those investments and in their grant making to represent the people that they're serving? The same is true in the public sector. I almost wish we could do a whole separate episode on uh, your answer to just that last question. That's fascinating. Um, Nate, I know we've covered a lot of ground today. Are there any other considerations that you'd like um, to add? Anything else you think is important for us to understand right now? You're right. There's so much to unpack here. And I, I'm so grateful for the, the forum just to share some initial thoughts. I would just end by saying we, we really are on a journey. Like I'm on a journey. You're on a journey. We are within our organizations. And it's important that we are really vulnerable in, in where we are in that journey. 
And I, I think if we rely on um, more performative actions, it actually won't, like we will regress. I, I think we can use this moment both in the pandemic and the heightened consciousness around um, racial justice as a way to collectively move forward and redefine um, what institutions mean for society. And that's where it actually is an individual action that has a collective benefit. So again, that notion of flattening the inequity curve is, is critical here. That's great, Nate. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much. Listeners, that's all we have time for today. If you'd like to give us your feedback on this episode or any other of our episodes, our inbox is always open to you. Just email us at futurefluency at nacdonline.org. We'll be back next episode to speak with Eric Lopez from the Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility about how organizations can engage with their Hispanic employees and community stakeholders. Measuring is one of the most important things a company can do to figure out or find out what their diversity and inclusion practices look like. And you know, one of the things that have kept companies from engaging us in particular with our survey has been the fear that if they measure or if they look at their practices, they'll find out that they're doing something wrong. But a lot of companies are actually, their outcomes are looking pretty good. And so it's important to still look at what you're doing in order to figure out not just what the numbers look like, but what, why is it working if it is working or not. That's next time on Future Fluency. For more resources and guest bios, check out the show notes or the episode page at nacdonline.org slash podcast. Future Fluency is produced by Bruno Falcon and edited by Bruno Falcon and Mark Williams-Holscher. This podcast is a production of the National Association of Corporate Directors. For more information on NACD or to become a member, please visit nacdonline.org.